Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the first book from Faith Matters Publishing is now available. It's called All Things New and was written by Fiona and Terrell Givens. When I finished the book, I just thought this has so much potential to actually change lives. They go through and trace the roots of our religious vocabulary and show how so many of these words have become totally unmoored from their original foundation and how a lot of those traditions have been carried forward for hundreds and even thousands of years and are in a lot of ways still damaging us today. And then they dive into how we can reformulate our language in healthy and inspiring ways. This book is so healing. It's hopeful. It's a totally paradigm shifting book that you will not be able to put down. You can pick up a copy for yourself or for friends and family. It's available at Desert Book on Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. We're so grateful for Terrell and Fiona and all of the amazing work that they've done here. All right, that's all for the book for now, but we have a lot more to come. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Tom Christofferson's journey through life has been anything but ordinary. An accomplished businessman, brother of an LDS apostle, and now author. His new book, That We May Be One, A Gay Mormon's Perspective on Faith and Family, includes a story of finding a spiritual home in a faith that often doesn't feel like a home to its gay members. To me, there's a, I hope, a critical mass, really, of members of the church who are praying earnestly that the Lord will reveal more. Yeah. And I think you, you only get to that point if your heart's open, right? I mean, if you really want there to be a understanding of every individual's place, and not just in the chapel, but in the plan of salvation, right? And, and that, I think, that opening can change the church. Yeah. The Lord will tell us whatever He wants to tell us whenever He wants to tell us. But we can, our own hearts can be changed and that can... And you feel patient? Most days. <laughs> Join Tom Christofferson and Terrell Givens for this extraordinary and very personal conversation. Hello and welcome to another installment of Conversations with Terrell Givens a podcast videocast series sponsored by the Faith Matters Foundation and dedicated to exploring the experience of lived Mormonism as a catalyst to the abundant life and to the public good. Our guest with us today is Tom Christofferson, an investment banker, a a public speaker, uh, and most recently, a writer. And we'll talk a little bit about your book later on, but uh, first we want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'd like to start by giving the audience a little bit of a sense of your background, and uh, I often do this by asking what you think you'll be remembered for up to this point in your life. (laughs) Uh, Give us a brief uh, synopsis of what your obituary is going to look like. What I hope it's not going to be is Apostle's gay brother. (laughs) (laughs) You notice I didn't mention that. (laughs) Which seems to be the shorthand for a lot of it right at the moment. Yeah. yeah. No, I... um, I've been very fortunate in a career that's, you know, been global in nature and had a chance to, to do really interesting things in that, in the professional sphere, and have had 
in kind of a chapter two sense, a, a wonderful opportunity to discover the church again and to, um, to really, I, I hope, play a role in opening wide the doors of chapels. Right to to try and find ways to bring other people also to a place where they would feel comfortable returning to a chapel who might have gone away for a time for whatever reasons. Yes. Let's let's start by talking a little bit about your spiritual formation, sure. uh, your spiritual journey, where it began, and the detours you've taken. Sure. And I like to to cite the poem of William Wordsworth in which he's writing about his own life and he says there are in our existence spots of time and he goes on to talk about how these are shaping influences that often occur as a moment, uh, an epiphany an experience or an encounter could you just pick a couple of uh, instances from your life that uh, going back as far as you can sure, that, uh, that gave shape and direction to your life you know, I think one is is probably as a very early teen, um, maybe even preteen. Um, junior high school was a horrible experience. I hated it. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't know if anybody <laughs> liked junior high school. Maybe the maybe the quarterback of the right, junior high football exactly. team. Um, but it but for me, my my refuge in that period of time was church. To have a social group that accepted me and welcomed me. Um, so you grew up in a strong LDS family. I did. We and in my early years, we were in New Jersey, and and then in the junior high years, and out, suburbs outside Chicago. And then when I started high school, we moved to Central Utah. But um, but because church was such a, a refuge, it also became a place I think where um, I took the lessons and the reading and the praying pretty seriously. Now, why is that? Were you just naturally disposed in that direction? You know, at, at sometimes I have, I have wondered if I'm of a believing temperament. But I, I genuinely think, though, it's always a choice. So, you know, I was certainly in an environment where belief was the common currency. Yeah. But there's still a choice to be made, and I, I think uh, I made it early, um, but then I've had a chance to make it again and again over the course of my life. Now, I want to press you on this point because sure. I'm, I'm curious about what, what, kind, what aspects of the church would attract, would appeal to a young junior high school aged mind. Right. Do you think it was something particular to restoration doctrine and, and ideas? Yeah, it was, it was very much Joseph Smith and the, the kind of history of restoration, I would say, the... Um, coming to understand the personalities and the process, but I think our grandparents had um, a great affinity for Joseph Smith, and they were married on his birth date and, deliberately. Uh huh. And so Christmas at their home was two days before <laughs> on December twenty third, and it was a celebration of the Prophet's birthday of their anniversary and an early yeah, Christmas. Yeah. And so, so that was a part of the fabric, I think, of of our lives, of such a profound um, respect and love for Joseph. Um, but I also remember a conversation with my dad when I was in high school. Um, and in seminary, we were covering the Book of Mormon. And and I had gone home one time and said to him, you know, do you think this is literally a, a journal? I mean, do you, do you think that somebody came 
and engraved practically, you know, real time all the things that were occurring. Um, and so in that sense, it's a, it's a literal record. Or do you think it's more kind of these are morality tales? That's not a way to say it, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, Inspired it's meant fiction. for our time. And are these really parables that the Lord has provided in our time? And and our dad was was a great scholar, you know, a gospel scholar and a scientist. And if you asked him a question, he gave you an answer. But this time I remember him and he just, he kind of looked at me and he said, well, what's your feeling about the Book of Mormon? And I said, well, you know, I, I feel like I've had the witness that Moroni talks about in the 10th chapter. Um, so I believe, you know, that it is a second witness of Jesus Christ. And he said, okay, well then, if the answer were either way, if it were literal um, recording of day-to-day events or uh, if it were if these were parables, would either answer change the way that you feel you've received an answer to your prayers about it? And then I had to sit back and think, well, I guess not. <laughs> and I said, okay. And See, I, the genius of that response by your father is to is to question the question, yeah, right? And to say... Now, how does this matter? What does right. it presuppose? What are the implications? And it seems like we don't get enough of that these days. I think so, too. And what I loved about it was it it came at a time, you know, still early in my search and study of the gospel and understanding of Scripture and everything else. And and it, it came as permission, right, to yes, be able yeah. to to incorporate things in my experience and in my life and the ways that I would understand it. So your first experience of a of a faith challenge question is of enlarged borders right. rather than constraint. Exactly right. So that's marvelous. I've often thought I wished in later years I would have gone back and asked the question again to see what he really thought. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but we never did. So I'll, I'll have to wait till I can see him again. Yeah. So that's one of those moments yes, that really kind of was. shaped your conception of what it means to be a believer. Right. And uh, can you think of think of others a little further down the road? Well, down the road, then, uh, the really the most critical was in my decision to come back to church. And now, t- talk a little bit first about why you drifted away. Sure. So I uh, drifted isn't really the word. <laughs> um, I had... Um, at the time of going on a mission, I had not told anybody that I was gay. So I knew I was, but I hadn't really talked to anybody about it. I hadn't done anything about it, so there wasn't much to say. But but it was this little secret harbored in my heart, and and my hope was always that, that I could pray it away, right? That somehow yeah. praying hard enough, fasting hard enough, and then thinking about a mission, if I would work hard enough and dedicate my life, that somehow the... The Lord would then be convinced that that I was worthy of a miracle or something. I, I, you know, and it's not like anybody ever said this to me. It was just somehow yeah. in my own sense that the great prayer was that I never would have to tell anybody, right? That this somehow would change, and I would never have to admit that this was who I was. And so I had a really wonderful mission experience, loved the people that I worked with. But when I came home, suddenly realizing that I was still gay was... A rude awakening. I thought the Lord had welched on his promise, you know. Yeah. And, and, of course, I was the one who would made the deal, not him. And But, you know, then I came back to BYU, and and uh, time went on. And as I this was— This is back in the 1970s. 80s. 80s. Mid-80s. 
And I had uh, the, the last semester of the BYU, I did an internship at the state Senate in Utah and ended up working on a congressional campaign for a year and then went to California. So I'm now, you know, that scourge of an unmarried man, you know, and 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 I'd had an experience that was one of the guys on the campaign was gay. And so it was my first time to really know somebody who was gay and. And somehow or another, that all translated. He had all sorts of challenges, but translated to me as, you know, wickedness never was happiness, right? This this would not be a way to be happy. And so that well, okay, well, if I get married in the temple, you know, then of course the Lord will make it all work because I'm trying to do all the right things. And so the you know sad part of that is I did get married in the temple and it didn't work, and the marriage was an old after a relatively short period and and. A really wonderful person who, you know, didn't know what she was getting into, and the only clue was I told her I had tendencies. Um, you know, had a really horrible experience in her life, and but it but it came to a point where for me it was, I've tried to be the best Mormon boy I could be, and this and it's I'm not happy, right? And I've made somebody else pretty unhappy too. Um, I need to do something differently, and so the. To me, it was if I need to find out if I can be gay and happy. Couldn't figure out how to be gay and Mormon, but I need to see if I can be gay and happy. And so I went to the bishop and said, I'd like to be excommunicated. You know, we're annulling the marriage. I'm gay, and I need to figure out what that means. And in that era, you know, saying you were gay was enough. And yeah. so that was the result. You know, and it was fine. Like, I didn't, I guess because it was my impetus to have it happen and and to me it really felt like integrity like if I was going to do this I needed to not still be portraying myself in anybody's mind as Mormon right because in my mind I just I couldn't do it I couldn't figure out how to be gay and Mormon so I needed to not be and so I did it wasn't um you know I didn't I didn't have hurt feelings I didn't feel bitter I didn't feel like I'd been treated badly. I just felt like I needed to find a different path for myself. And there was the whole journey in that process of discovery of who I was. But it was never for me a, um, a lack of testimony. You know, I didn't suddenly cease to believe in Christ. I didn't suddenly cease to believe in the Book of Mormon. But I just couldn't figure out how I could follow the path I'd been on. And right. so... My determination was I wanted to be a morally good person as a gay person and then figure out what that meant, to hold on to as much as I could and move forward. So that phase of your life lasted how long? Uh, about 25 years, during which period I met the person who would become my partner of 19 years, and we had a you know, pretty wonderful life together. Yeah. So here's the question. You're going to tell us the story of, of yeah. how you, what, what prompted you to come back. Right. But I'm reminded as I'm listening to you of, um, of St. Augustine, who early in his career was a, was a vigorous defender of the idea of premortal existence. Mm -hmm. And one of his main, he had several arguments in, in his favor, but one of his main arguments was uh, he, he compared it to the woman uh, who lost the coin and is searching for the coin. And he said, well, she wouldn't be searching for it if she hadn't once possessed it. Mm. And he said, we, similarly, he said, we as, as eternal beings wouldn't be in search of God if we hadn't once known him. Mm. We wouldn't be pursuing happiness if we hadn't left a happy condition and happy estate. 
So is that relevant? Um, how something? Can I amend that slightly? Please, because, please do. Because I don't, I don't feel like I didn't have the spirit in other parts of my life. Right. What I would say is I, I feel it more powerfully, more consistently now. Thank you for than I did clarifying before. that. Good. But it, but I, you know, I, I felt like I was a spiritual person who was trying to follow those promptings. Um, but I also felt that I wanted the, I wanted a, a more uh, rigorous curriculum of study or something, and 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 really that connection of service in the church, of you know really being tied to other people, as we all together try to discover what discipleship means, and work in that regard. And so, I had gone to other churches, and I don't mean that in any disparaging way whatsoever. It just, for me, the restoration was what made sense intellectually to me, that that all kind of fit. So I'm hearing two different kinds of motivations. One is, is there's a particular kind of community that you felt you weren't a part of and you wanted to be a part of that again. Yes. But there's also a particular narrative, a a particular theology. That made sense to me. That made sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so at a certain, you know, despite a very happy life or maybe because of a very happy life, and wanting to add that element of deeper meaning again and really focus on that, um, I started to go back to church again. And I, in the early days, would just sneak in, you know, after the meeting had begun, and, and then finally talk to a bishop and discovered that I could be myself, that I could be open and honest and still be welcome to worship with the saints. And so that really began that next process. And and we started this as you know, what are the spiritual formulating form, the most um, important formative experiences of my spiritual life? Yeah, and and I would say the most important one really was in that process then of coming back to church because the more connected I became, the more I wanted to really engage deeply, and the more I was studying and praying, the more I wanted to be able to do more. And and to me, do more meant to actually be able to be a member of the church. It was great to, as I always said, that I was the most active non-member of the New Canaan Ward. But, you know, I had this prayer that somehow I would be able to be a member again. And I didn't see how that could occur um, because of the commitments that I made to my partner. And so my prayer had been that for years, really, in this this is kind of a seven-year, eight-year period of living in New Canaan, but five years before really getting serious about possibly joining the church again. Um, my prayer was always that somehow he would feel what I felt and would have a desire to explore this, that we could do it together and could make decisions together about what that would mean for us and where we wanted to go. And that ended up not being the case, but at a certain point when, you know, for me it really became a question of, am I, can I commit to this now rather than in a future life or yeah. some other circumstance. And to answer that question, I really felt like I had to know more than just believing it, but but to have another level of knowledge that Christ lived and that he is indeed the Christ, you know, that the, that his resurrection has power, that his atoning sacrifice has power, and that those things were real, not just, you know, really wonderful ideas. And so that was, that is the I think, most critical element of my spiritual life. 
So you, you consider yourself fortunate in that you found a bishop yes. in a community yes. who were uh, inspired enough mm -hmm. to be welcoming and embracing. And uh, that's not always one's experience uh, from what you I know, hear. <clears throat> it's not, and I think there are I think there are things we as individuals in that circumstance can do to make it more likely. You know, I think if our approach is, and again, it says this isn't, in my mind, this isn't just LGBTQ members of the church or non-members of the church. It's kind of anybody who feels that they don't really fit. They're not the Mormon mold. But I think if we approach it as our desire is really discipleship, right? Our purpose in being there is to experience, learn, and act as disciples, um, then we have common cause with the other people who are there. There's, We've got framework, a common ground that we can participate in together. You know, I think if our purpose is to go help everybody else learn why they're wrong or <laughs> what else they need to know or how they can broaden their own understanding, then, you know, then we don't have yeah. a common purpose. Yeah. So that's a piece, but I, but we do have to be met, right? It has, the arms have to be open at least enough for a handshake yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, and I hope that's becoming a more common experience. I think it is. Let me, let me ask you a question. I was at a, a single adult conference not too long ago, and there's a beautiful, beautiful testimony meeting. And uh, some members of this particular ward were suffering any number of different kinds of afflictions, mental, uh, emotional, and social. Mm -hmm. One young man who was clearly troubled in, in some particular kinds of ways I didn't fully understand stood up to bear his testimony. And he began by looking out over the audience and saying, the first thing you need to know about me is that I'm weird. And he didn't mean that in some kind of ironic way. <laughs> right. He was just saying, I'm, I'm weird, and uh, you'll have to accept me as weird. And in fact, he said, I've handed out some three-by-five cards to ask that you might write something to me, to communicate something to me. And he said a few other words, and then he, 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 he sat down. And, uh, of course, I was struck both by the unusual nature of his expression and right. also by the kind of plea for some kind of contact and interaction yeah. that he clearly didn't feel he was experiencing. So as the meeting ended and the crowd dispersed, I noticed that he was hanging back in the very, very far part of the room watching and still too timid to engage. So I walked back to him and I, I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, you know, you need to know something. I said, we're all of us weird. I said, we're just all weird in our own ways. Right. And he said, he said, that's beautiful. Would you write that down for me? <laughs> so, I, so I wrote it down and, and I handed him his, his card and, and that seemed to be helpful to him. So I don't want to minimize the status of gays in the church right. or of African Americans. But would you say that there is some truth in, in, in the claim that we are arriving at a point where we are increasingly coming to recognize the, the variety, but also the universality of the crosses that individuals bear? And I don't believe that God designs sickness. I don't think he sends cancer. I don't think he reorients us one way or the other sexually. But I do believe he makes good of all that happens. And so do you see this as, a, as, a, as an opening, this phase that we're in right now, where we are learning to be more 
unconditional, unqualified in our capacity to love and embrace and accept? I really do. I, I mean, in one specific example, I feel like the, the policy about um, you know, same-sex marriage equals apostasy and the children of those unions have delayed opportunity for ordinances. Um, you know, that has, that's been such a difficult thing for members of the church who themselves are not impacted. Yeah. You know, um, for many of them. And I, so to me, there's a, I hope, a critical mass, really, of members of the church who are praying earnestly that the Lord will reveal more. Yeah. And I think you, you only get to that point if your heart's open, right? I mean, if you really want there to be a understanding of every individual's place, and not just in the chapel, but in the plan of salvation. Right, and, and that, I think, that opening can change the church. Yeah. The Lord will tell us whatever he wants to tell us whenever he wants to tell us. But we can, our own hearts can be changed, and that can And you feel patient? Most days. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you agonize in your own mind? Do you wrestle with the theological underpinnings that have produced this kind of a, of a, of a situation in the church? You know, I... These, these <clears throat> limitations on the way we define the family? Um, I've <clears throat> I guess I've come up with my own views about um, the primacy of the family of God, uh, of the, the sealing chain that connects me to everyone before and everyone after. Yeah. And in that sense, I, for me, I feel like I look forward to relationships that will be celestial without understanding how really to right. categorize them or right. see them in perfect clarity. But I, but my experience of um, the Lord's grace, that um, his generosity so far outstrips any merit, yeah. that I, I feel completely at ease that whatever lies ahead will be better than I can imagine. Right. There are theological possibilities, I see, and maybe you don't want to go down this avenue. But I'm struck by the fact that the Catholic Church, who has a position in many ways parallel to the LDS uh, position, predicates their um, stance on natural law theology, which is based in biology mm -hmm. and in sexual differentiation of the male and female bodies. Um, and we often, I think, assume that we're kind of in a, in a similar position on the field, and yet I, I, it strikes me that there's great significance in the fact that the proclamation on the family doesn't use the word sex as eternal or sexual orientation as eternal, yeah. but gender is eternal. And true enough, in the secular academy and the World Health Organization and such institutions define gender as entirely a social construct, but we have presumably an inspired document that says, well, no, actually there is an aspect to gender which is eternal and that that may be differentiated from sexual attraction, mm -hmm. which is largely a function of biology, of chemistry, of hormones. Right. And so it does seem to me that there are possibilities there that open uh, ways of thinking about, about sexuality and same-sex attraction that haven't really been plumbed theologically. And I'm not going to do that yeah. now. <laughs> but it does seem to me that there are, there are ways of thinking this through that we haven't, haven't yet attempted. You know, two, two reactions to that. The first is the group of friends, the group of people I love who 
find that statement in the proclamation to the world and the family most comforting are my transgender brothers and sisters who feel like they do have an eternal gender and it somehow got mismatched right in the in how this world operates right so for many of them that's a very comforting thought i think for um you know my sense has been that so much of how we picture eternity is a projection of our current experience right, right? right. and i and so since you know 94% of the world is straight or whatever the the com- most common experience of happiness in this world is mom and dad and kids yeah Right, and so that I think is the projection of greatest happiness, and and it leads people who absolutely love us as LGBT members of the church to project that everything will be straightened out for us in the next world, and and I'm so like, look, I, I I appreciate the love behind that thought, and I'm willing to suspend judgment and wait to see how it really plays out because I don't understand all of the relationships involved in the ceiling chain. Right. I, you know, I'm the, the Joseph in proven contraries, right? And the, the opposites, the yin and yang, however you want to think about it. I mean, I'm very happy to think of the notion of the, the ceiling ordinance as the highest priesthood power that requires man and woman for that, at least as we understand it now. That's fine. Yeah. But as I said to a friend of mine, you know, I, if we're going to project our current experiences, that earlier in my career I was co-head of a business, you know, and, and went home to my partner. So I'm happy to think that there could be a, a shared priest of power and I still get to go home to my partner. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I, well, I say that a little flippantly, but I think we don't really know. Well, the, we've become more and more uncomfortable with saying that. And I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm a historian of Mormonism. I should be able to point to what moment in time this, this shift occurred, but I, I can't locate it exactly. All I can do is contrast the, the consternation that we experience today because we have apostles saying, well, we don't fully understand all these things, mm-hmm. with the kind of blithe, faithful acceptance of that statement when it was issued by President Wilford Woodruff in 1894. When he says, well, we've been doing sealing wrong for 51 years. Mm-hmm. We've been doing it dynastically. But today the Lord said, no, we need to be doing it father to son, son to father. And there's a lot more to be revealed that we still don't have. And from the records that I read of that period, there were many grateful, happy members who said, well, yeah, I thought it wasn't quite right that we were doing this sealing dynastically and polygamously. Mm-hmm. And so now that's been straightened out, but we still haven't seen the finished product of what it's going to look like. So uh, it would be, seems like we'd all be better off if we could just be a little more chill <laughs> and say, you know, this is a work in process, yeah. right? The restoration is still unfolding. We don't understand fully the nature of familial organization right. in, in the world to come. Uh, but the most important thing is that the thing that hasn't changed from Joseph's original vision to the present is that there will be eternal bonds of affection, right? That will be honored and preserved and magnified. Right. And... Uh, so I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. I think that can take us back to our earlier comment about discipleship as well, in the sense that you know that what is at play is agency and intelligence, and you know if the Lord just handed us the the answers to the quiz, you know what would be the point? And and frankly, 
I, I love the notion and think about this in terms of both spiritual promptings and, and the effort of discipleship as that we all learn differently. The, yeah. the Lord, through the Spirit, tutors each one of us in the ways that we best learn. And yeah. I really believe that. I really do feel like this is such an individual process and learning. You know, I'm going to take one step back. I, I had a, was asked to speak at a funeral and, and it was uh, the, the son of just beloved, beloved friends who'd committed suicide. And it was the hardest thing I could think of. What, what do you say in that circumstance? And the, And what came to my mind as I was praying about that and trying to think was the the notion that if we orient our lives to living perfectly, if if everything that we're focused on is that we ferret out every commandment and suggestion and counsel and and just hold to those and work to do everything we do perfectly, that I think that leads almost inevitably to either envy or pride as we look at how everybody else is doing it in some sense that that this is a, that the Lord grades on a curve, right? That somehow we're competing with each other in some regard in this process. But if we focus on loving perfectly, yeah, I, I, then everything I, else comes I noticed that in your book, yeah. right, which which is coming out, this, um, that we may be one, yeah. um, that you, you, you say, and I think it's beautifully expressed, you say the, the point should be to love perfectly, not to live perfectly. Right. Um, because there is, and this is, you know, my favorite theologian is Kenneth Kirk. He's an Anglican theologian. And he says the fundamental problem of religion is this. And he says the problem erupts the moment you organize religion. Mm. Now, he's, he's an Anglican, so he right. believes in organized religion. <laughs> High church. But he's, but he's, yeah. But he says the moment that you have rules and codes, principles, you're continually measuring yourself against those. Right. And so your religion becomes entirely self-centered. Yes. How am I doing? What do I need to do better? And he said, the spirit of worship has to be an outward uh, reaching impulse. And so that it resonated with me yeah. when you when you said that. Is can you say more about that? Do you think as Mormons we tend to be um, too fixated on living? I do. I, rather than I, loving. You know, again, and it's um, some of that can be fear. I think of President Uchtdorf's talking in the April conference about uh, perfect love casts us out fear. You know, that if our, we, that are our motivations fear-derived or are they love-derived? Yeah. And I, I think that's really powerful that we are, the first and second great commandments are love of our Heavenly Father, the Savior, and of all around us. And so everything else, the Law and the Prophets, hangs off of those. So I think if we get the, if we have our point of inflection identified correctly, then everything else will fall along. But if all we're, if we are just so focused inwardly, if we're just, am I doing it right? And and I know I'm doing it right because these other people are doing so many worse things. Yeah. Right. They, since I have no desire to commit or don't even have a physical ability to commit, you know, they're doing so. I must really be doing great. You know. And I th- I think about that in terms of the rich young man. Do you remember that where, and I a rich young ruler on the in the other version of it, but. When Mark tells us that Jesus, looking upon him, loved him. Yeah, and it's the moment when he looked on him. He looked on him before he knew which way right. the young man was going to go. Yeah. And to, to my mind, what's being taught there is God loves us independent of whether or not we pass the test. Right. And I think, I think he also loved his 
dutiful nature, his observance, the fact that he'd followed yep. all the commandments since his yeah. youth, yeah. which would have included, by the way, giving to the poor, right? He would he would already have been doing that. Right, right. And so I think when the Lord says to him, you know, sell it all and come follow me, I don't think he, the Lord can take care of the poor in any number of ways, right? It, it wasn't the money, it was he wanted the heart. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest part, right, is that when we move from our focus on the the observances or the outward performances, then we're then all we can focus on is our heart and our willingness to let our will be subsumed in His, and that that that's all that's going to matter is that who we've become by virtue of His presence in our heart. Well, let me ask you something about the nature of the heart and discipleship. I, I've been thinking a lot lately. I've been ruminating on the the story of Job. Which is always I've just I've just been fascinated by that account because there's something so psychologically realistic about that, and the scriptures don't use the word cognitive dissonance, but it seems to me that that is the great drama right. of cognitive dissonance, which I think is the severest test that God can subject us to. I think that's the test in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Two seemingly conflicting commands, mm-hmm. and as I and as I reread Job um, over and over again, he's 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 saying, "I know, I know, I'm a man of integrity, and I know the Lord is just." So this situation doesn't make sense, right? Right? And his friends are saying, "Well, just admit that, that you're a sinner," right. but I know I'm not. Well, then you know, then God. Well, no, but God isn't. He's not fallible, and. It's in a, and I think I heard you say something like this just a few minutes ago when you said, well, discipleship is hard. Yeah. We don't have all the answers, which is another way of saying we have conflicting right. information. Right. And so what gets us through? Well, it's just right if our heart is committed. It isn't. To, and to me, it's the daily bread because I don't because I can't answer those questions with certainty or I can't do the reconciliation of what feels to me to be conflicting commandments the only way i can manage it is to is to try to keep moving forward in faith each day and each day then ask for the the bread and sustenance for that time and i it's been a hard lesson to learn for somebody who is uh, who by nature is always looking ahead um, but i've also i've also felt like um even in the eternities, you know, Joseph said that it would be a, a significant a work time. even then, right? To yeah. learn our salvation even after we pass through the veil. Right. So t- I kind of feel like that that process of faith and trust and being willing to move forward without sufficient answers on a daily basis, but knowing that the Lord will provide for today, may well be part of our experience even beyond this world. You know, that, that we may not have, we may not open our eyes when yeah. we arrive in the world of spirits and go, that's how it all fits. Well, yeah, in fact, this is something, I'm not, it seems to me there's, there's one gap in Mormon theology that I can't quite, quite bridge. And that is, we put so much em- emphasis on this veil of forgetfulness. And, you know, man's search for happiness, you go through the veil and there, everything. But in no, technicolor. <laughs> if, if, if full knowledge was restored to us at that time, why would there be evangelizing going on in the spirit world? Right. So there has to be, there have to be all kinds of areas still of uncertainty, of doubt, of, of, of ignorance that we have to work our way through 
even in the next sphere of our existence. Which gets to an idea of eternal progression, doesn't it? That's, there you go. <laughs> and I know you and I see it similarly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that I don't, I mean, I think there is a judgment for this life, <clears throat> but I wonder if there aren't multiple other judgments. Well, look, I'm a professor, right? I give a final exam, but it's not the last one they're going to have. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that's yeah. how I, I, yeah, I think final judgment means it's the final judgment at the conclusion of this phase of your, this right. estate, this phase of your existence. But I don't think Elder Robert D. Hales would have told us, never, 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 never shut the door of your heart to your children. Yeah. If we had a God who shuts the door of his heart to us. So I think eternal progression has to be eternal progression. So I do too. And I, I get age. there through um, the infinite atonement. You know, we already know that the that Jesus Christ's atonement has effect outside of this world because the people in the world of spirits can repent and 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 be right. covered by it, right? right? And so and it may apply to other worlds and I don't know why it wouldn't also apply infinitely as time is concerned or eternity is concerned. Yeah, there was a time this was a pretty standard teaching from Joseph Smith who enacts it in the temple, right? Progression. Yep. all the way back to the celestial kingdom, and it was taught pretty universally by all the brethren until the 1950s and 60s. And then, that Calvinistic strain of Mormonism is hard to it distinguish. Comes it, it is, it is. But t- together, Tom, we can do it. Okay. Um, um, I want to talk a little bit more about, about your understanding of discipleship, sure. because I think you're a, a beautiful, magnificent example of, of a disciple of Christ, um, but tell me what you've learned that you didn't know before you came back to the church. As, as you said, I, I have no doubt that you were living a good, moral, committed life right. and that you did feel the influence of the Spirit in your life. But um, what's different about your discipleship now? You know, I think the... And it's this is a journey in progress, right? But... Um, I love Joseph's first account of the first vision. 1832. Right. When he says that, and for days afterward I was filled with love. To me, that's the biggest. When I, when I feel close to Savior, when I'm doing my best in, in my desire for discipleship, I know it because I feel that love. Tom, why do we have such a hard time as a people making Christ the center of our testimonies? Right, We're, we, it's it's become so much oriented around historical propositions that we assent to. These things yeah. happened, and the restoration events, which are important, they're seminal, but they're the vehicle. Yeah. But you know, you seldom encounter a Latter Day Saint who says, "Yeah, I just, uh, I just gave up on Christ," or "Yeah, I just didn't like the weeping God of Enoch," or "Yeah, this eternal relation." I mean, they, right? It's all the, the the peripheral stuff, but but why? Why do we get so distracted from the centrality of Christ in our faith and discipleship? I don't know. I think we need to. Um, I think we need to to build testimony of Christ first. And let me give you an example. So I um, and maybe because I'm not a dad, you know, I'm, I I just don't see it the same way. But, but you're I, an uncle, right? I am. A, I am. A, I love being an uncle <laughs> <laughs> and a grand uncle. Um, I get so uncomfortable when I hear a little four-year-old or five-year-old say, I know the church is true. 
and I, I love their feeling, but I wish they were saying, I know that Jesus loves me. Yeah. Because they do. Yeah. I know they do. And I, I think they're born knowing it. And I wish we started there, really focused on the Savior, and that that's our, that's every one of us has that individual connection, and that that's what we build on. And the Savior created or restored a vehicle to help us as a people, help all around us come to Him. Now, so that, now, so that it's not, we don't lose our faith in the church. And therefore, there is no Christ. It's We always know there's Christ, and the church and our understanding of it and testimony of it builds on that. Yeah. Are there any particular ways in which you think God's inspiration is manifest in the way the restored church is designed and structured to bring us to Christ? I mean, we have to believe that it's doing a better job than the right. options that were available, or why, why go to the trouble, right? I, I think there are a lot of them, and you know maybe even the most practical, Gene England's essay, right, on the church is as true right? as the gospel. See, I think that's, I think that's it's huge. It is. We are the only—well, somebody told me the Amish also. Okay. But with that possible exception, we're the only church that you have to go where you live. Yes. And you got to learn to love these people, right? And I, I always think it's so much like brothers and sisters, right? Yes. Most of us, you may be an exception. You got a particularly lovely family, I have four right? Great but, ones. but many of us, it's like I never would have chosen that guy as a brother. But, but you love him more than anything because right. you had to learn, and that's the principle. I see. yeah, okay, so that's good. What, what and I think we love them because of what we go through together, right? Which is yeah. Yeah. true of family and ward, yeah. right? Yeah. You know that those experiences that really bond us together are what we've had to get through together, right. and. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a genius aspect of because I think that's the way the we should be looking church. at the church. Is that's the question we should be asking? Is is the litmus test should be what does this do to foment in me a love for Christ, right. a, a, a correct knowledge and understanding of Him and my dependence on Him? And if you look for it, I think you do see these things. I mean, I think home teaching, visiting teaching is another great example of that, right? Where right. where we create a community of, of ministers ministering to each other. I think you know we've talked. We don't seem to talk about it as often anymore, but the fourfold mission of the church. That sometimes that fourth mission seems to be forgotten, which to me is is the crux of it all, right? Yeah. Which is our ministry to the poor. And again, it's not. I would include the poor in spirit as well as the poor as to the things of the world. But that's that's where we really learn to go outside ourselves. And yes, saving our ancestors, but there's still a connection there with the those who have earthly difficulties and spiritual difficulties, we don't necessarily have to have a connection unless we're trying to do the work of the Savior. And then that's where it happens, right? Yeah. And that, again, I yeah. think that's, that is a, an, a critical aspect of the mission of the church, not because they need our money, because they need our hearts and the Lord needs our hearts to become open to him. You know, any little crack in the broken heart, he can fill and jump in with, with his love and power. Yeah. Coming back to the church recommitting, has uh, it been harder in any ways than you anticipated? You know, when I when I was really considering that as a as a something that might happen, there were two. I had two critical questions. One, could I live with the 
the uh, law of chastity as we currently understand it, and if that's for the rest of my life, be able to make that commitment and live live according to it. And that took me a while to come to that conclusion, and there were some spiritual experiences along the way that helped me to gain confidence I could. Um, but the second, which to me was equally as important, was I felt like I'll never fit in. You know, I'll never be uh, the kind of or normal... Ensign version. Right. <laughs> Mainstream so, Mormon. can I find happiness there? And the, and that, again, a series of pleadings and promptings. Um, one happened one day. I was sitting in the Chapel New Canaan Ward in Connecticut, and at that point I knew everybody in the ward and loved them. But, but I remembered a bishop saying, you know, it's such a, an amazing word, and then you're called as bishop, and you sit on the stand and realize there's a problem in every pew. <laughs> and yeah. and I and I looked around, and, and it wasn't I wasn't looking at problems in pews. I was looking at who here would feel like they don't really fit the mold. You know, who would feel like even this wonderful place of such great love and acceptance would feel like they aren't really kind of the standard Mormon. And I came up with two thirds. The two thirds of that congregation, for one reason or another, would have some reason why they would think they didn't really fit the mold. It's like, wait a minute, if the majority of us don't fit, <laughs> I think we've got the wrong conception of what fit means. Yeah. And that I mean that's one example, but I but the way I really fit is that um is discipleship. Is is my purpose in being a part of it is a desire to be able to come to know increasingly better the Savior and to align my life more and more with his. Yeah. You know, doubt is a word that on everybody's lips these days. Uh, uncertainty may be a less offensive word to some ears. Um, have you had struggles, recurrent struggles, since reentry with... I, you know, to me, I don't think you have faith without doubt. Um, Otherwise, it isn't faith, right? It's something right. else. It's knowledge, right? Yeah. And it, and and there are areas where I feel like I really do know something. I that that Jesus is the Christ. I feel like I know that, but but I think I still operate by faith. And you and you said choice mm -hmm. is important a few minutes ago. Can you talk about choice and how you experience that as as a part of your faith? Yeah, I, and I think especially in terms of um, the speed of progress of things I wish would happen or ways that that's, that to me seem the, the Lord's work could be progressed more quickly. Um, so I choose to continue working and, and, and keep faith in the goodness, the... Um, faithful desires of others who are called to positions of leadership and that that the the Lord is giving them uh, as in his own timetable and that they are doing the very best they can to to do everything possible to fulfill the callings that they have. So there are days that's a harder choice than others and but yeah. but most days that's a choice I'm happy to make and willingly make. Yeah. What what changes would you like to see in our culture? Not in, not not officially, not doctrinally, but where can we do better that you would like to see in your lifetime? I, I think about it as if we would if we would kind of 
acknowledge that there is a temple standard of worthiness and a chapel standard of worthiness, and that they exist side by side in the church, that there are some who are able and desirous of being able to make covenants and, and, and exist in a temple standard of worthiness, and others who are not there at any point in time. But to me, the chapel standard of worthiness is if you can walk, if you're willing to walk through the door, you want to have some kind of a connection to Christ, you're worthy. And that's where I wish we'd make our biggest change. You know, what a beautiful idea. We have that sign on the door that says visitors welcome that should say all are welcome. Yeah. That this is the home for anybody and everybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're, they don't need to show us their repentance. They don't need to show us progress in their lives. Our job is just to open our hearts and our minds and our arms and be there to support. And they'll help us know what would be useful that we can do. And I, I it's all in my mind. It's all there. Yeah. It's just acting on what we already know, and freeing ourselves of the fear. The fear of the unknown. The fear of um, if. If the Lord really is as generous and as forgiving and as full of grace, does that mean that our our performances didn't matter after all? What are we doing well? What, is there anything you can look around and say, "Yeah, Mormons are getting this now." There, you know, I, I think I think there are a lot of ways, and um, you know, I think we. I think in some in some ways that first piece is just almost giving people permission to do what they want to do anyway. I think Mormons are such a loving people. It's almost just saying, yeah, that is the right instinct. Go with it. And I, and so you see that in the humanitarian aspects of the church. I see it in Fast Sunday. You know that so many people are willing to literally do without something that is good for them in order that that very thing may be provided to someone else, that someone else can literally have what they're willing to forego just so that others can be taken care of. I, I think that's incredible. Yeah. And that's, I think that exists in so many ways. I love that Mormons are reverent people. You know, that we, that we do want to be careful in our speech and in our conduct, that we want to be... Um, we want to establish places where the spirit of the Lord can be unrestrained, especially in our own hearts. I think there, I think there's so many things that are just incredible. Good, good. One last question I'd like to wrap up with. Um, Christopher Stendhal used the expression "holy envy" mm. to describe that feeling that we should have a righteous jealousy of some other traditions, practice, temperament, contributions. What what? Looking at other faith traditions that you've encountered or experienced, what do you have envy of that you'd like to see us replicate? Um, I, th- I think there is, there are in some traditions a very practical Christian approach to how we engage with others, and that um, so a soup kitchen. Uh, an employment center or whatever it is. And you'd say, you know, as a church, we do that in Desert Industries or we do it in the Bishop's Storehouse. But I wonder 
if we are personally as engaged as some of the most wonderful people I know in other faith traditions for whom their real demonstration of Christianity is literally that engagement within the community. That fourth mission, that fourth leg of the yeah. missions of the church. And it's not, a, and you know, that sense that it's a, that it's a personal obligation every day to find a way to, to sh- share a burden, lift a burden with someone else. And we, you know, we have it, we have it in our, in our baptismal covenant that we'll mourn with those who mourn and comfort those in need of comfort. But I think there are some traditions where um, that individual impetus and drive is stronger. And I I want us to be the best at that. (laughs) Good. Thank you. Well, Tom, I appreciate you being with us today. It's been a delight speaking to you as always. Thanks. Thanks for being with us.